Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's cool fact of the day is natto, which is a traditional Japanese food made from fermented soybeans with a bacterial starter, has a really musty flavor and it smells like ammonia or kind of like the other thing that smells like ammonia, which is pee. All of the other fermented foods that you might eat that are made out of soy, things like miso and tempeh and tofu, use yeast or mold as the ferment substance. Natto is cool because it specifically uses bacteria, which create these like spiderweb sticky substance things made out of glutamic acid polymers, which can stretch up to eight feet long. The longer the stretchiness of the threads, the better the quality of the natto. That's kind of a cool fact of the day. Also, if you've never eaten natto, it is really like eating boogers. It's gross, but it's good for you because it contains natto kinase. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. I'm really excited about today's guest. Today's guest is Dr. Kate Rayom Blue. Kate, did I say that right? Perfect. Cool. That's why I go with Dr. Kate. (laughs) All right, this is Dr. Kate. She's on today to talk about one of my favorite vitamins, 
something that you've read about if you look at my top 10 vitamin list on the Bulletproof exec site because she knows about vitamin K2. And she wrote this book called Vitamin K2 and the Calcium Paradox, How a Little-Known Vitamin Could Save Your Life. And she's also a naturopath, at least a graduate of a college of naturopathic medicine, and has worked with a supplement company called Natural Factors Nutritional Products as an educational spokesperson. Dr. Kate, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. All right. Why did you write a book on K2? What led you to do that? Lots of reasons. Uh, well, partly because I had read uh, Weston Price's Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, oh, yeah. which was so interesting to me. And a few months after that, maybe about six months later, started to find articles, this is back in 2007, on vitamin K2. I thought this nutrient was so fascinating, had so many interesting health benefits, even though it was still early days of research, and it still is. Went running back to Price's book to find out, because I was sure that he had talked about it, and went through the whole book and found nothing about vitamin K2, or so I thought, in that book. And it really confused me. Anyway, I was still interested in K2, and a couple months later, amazing uh, article came out by Chris Masterjohn linking Price's work with Activator X to vitamin K2. And from that point, I was really hooked, because I knew there was such an interesting story you know, a traditional story, lots of research, um, as well as new scientific evidence, modern studies. And also around that time, the research was coming out looking at the problems with calcium supplements and calcium supplements causing increased risk of heart attack and stroke. And that was so confusing, and it still is for people. And that's because, you know, just looking at calcium and trying to figure out if it's safe or not, we'll never come to a good conclusion to that. And, and really, we need to be finding out how can the body safely utilize calcium because we've always had to deal with calcium in our bodies and get it to the right places and that's what vitamin k2 does so there were there were lots of reasons i felt like there was an important story that needed to be told around this overlooked nutrient so chris master john has been a guest on bulletproof executive radio and i mean he's such a fountain of knowledge and he's a guy whose work i really really respect and it, it, mm -hmm. it's really cool how he called this out in the early days yeah so it, it's awesome that he was an inspiration to you as well and I've been telling people for quite a while, based on all the anti-aging research I've done with the Silicon Valley Health Institute in, in Palo Alto, where I'm, I'm chairman, it's like, hey, maybe you ought not to be over-supplementing calcium, especially if you are not taking magnesium and potassium and things like that. Uh, in fact, the only kind of calcium I really recommend is calcium AEP or calcium deglucarate for most people, unless they have a need for extra calcium. Um, what is the calcium paradox from your perspective there? Because, I, I mean, the anti-aging guys I know are mostly like, eh, you don't want too much of that stuff. But they could be wrong, and it is multifactorial, this darn complex system of the body. You, you can't just test one vitamin at a time and expect to get good results, just like you can't, you know, bake a, a loaf of bread by cooking the yeast first and then cooking the water. You got to mix them. So how does all this work? What's the paradox? Well, well, there's two things there. Uh, the paradox for me is this situation which so many people find themselves in, in which we absolutely need calcium in our bodies, and we especially need it in our bones and our teeth, and that's exactly where it tends to be lacking. People are prone to osteoporosis and dental cavities, so that is the minerals leaching out of the areas where they should be and leaving behind little holes, whether it's you know porous bones or a hole in your tooth. 
And then the flip side of that is in the very same people or, you know, in the population at large, we see a buildup of calcium in places where it shouldn't be, in places where you don't want it to be, like arteries and kidney stones and heel spurs and breast tissue calcification and heart valves and carotids, all kinds of areas. And so, so there we have this paradoxical situation of needing calcium, but it can be dangerous if it gets in the wrong places. And that's really vitamin K2's role is to keep calcium in its place at all times. And it makes a lot of sense that it sounds incredible that you can, you know, boost your bone health and reverse heart disease and all that kind of thing. But it makes sense that the body does have a way of dealing with this if it has the right nutrients to deal with that. And you're right, in general, we can't look at any individual nutrient and really pinpoint uh, because all of the nutrients work together, we can't really pinpoint the action of one away from the others. But vitamin K2 is different and unique in that aspect um, because we have warfarin, which is a drug that artificially reduces your levels of vitamin K and vitamin K only. And because of that, it provides a unique example that we don't have for any other kind of nutrient to see exactly what happens in the body when we're deficient in vitamin K. And what happens there is inappropriate calcification. We see calcium leaching out of the bones and building up in soft tissues. I don't know if this is, I just don't remember if this is in your book. Have you written about free oxalic or oxalic acid or oxalates in the body and free calcium? What, what's your take on that? That is a conundrum. I, I haven't written about that in the book. There are so many things that you can write about, yeah. especially when you start talking about calcium. I, you know, I do touch on magnesium, but that's not an issue um, I have addressed, and it's one I actually still struggle with. Of course, you know, green leafies being very important, and yet they also have this double-edged sword issue. Well, let let me ask you more about that. Uh, there's this. Uh, there's a, a comedian guy named Joe Rogan, who's been talking about doing these kale smoothies, like raw kale in the morning. And so to to just offer some value to his listeners, when I went on recently, I looked at all the research here. And if you cook kale and you choose the right species of kale, you can get a lot less oxalic acid. And oxalic acid, when it binds to calcium inside muscles or inside, say, the vagina, where it's a particular problem in women uh, or other places, it causes like weakness and pain and all. And I said, well, maybe you should add the calcium when you're cooking it so that you can precipitate out the oxalic acid using calcium instead of allowing the calcium in your body to do it. What's your take on that idea? Well, I think that speaks to the tradition of serving foods like those, uh, you know, green leafy vegetables, Swiss chard, kale, all of those things. First of all, not raw, yeah. always cooked, always with some sort of a fat, which does all kinds of things, mm -hmm. but typically with some sort of uh, cheese, like you know, spinach and cheese and, and this kind of thing. And that introduces both some calcium as well as some fat. There's, aside from the fact that these things taste good, I think there, there was some traditional wisdom in preparing uh, foods that way. And I'm not a fan of raw kale. Uh, I avoid the whole you know kale Caesar salad, even the kale chips. I just yeah. don't think it's a good idea to be eating those things in large quantities raw. They just should be cooked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you heard it here first from a naturopath. Uh, my my research, my time as a raw vegan, uh, taught me that as well. When you do the research, you dig in. Uh, there's a reason that that animals don't eat these raw leafy greens. Uh, you try and give raw kale to a horse, and it'll look at you like you're dumber than a horse uh, because they won't eat it. And there's a reason they don't eat it. It's not because 
they didn't want their vitamin K, it's because it needs cooking. It has toxins that are still active and they particularly hit you in the kidneys because that's where you're going to catch most of it. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, these are, in, in one sense, the plant's ways of protecting themselves from being consumed. And humans, well, we found ways of getting around that. And there's compelling evidence to suggest that we evolved exactly for that reason, because we learned to adapt and cook certain foods and get nutrition out of them that other species couldn't. And then, you know, we're better off for it. Uh I would agree with you there. And I didn't used to. I, I used to be all into, it's the enzymes. You got to eat everything raw. And I, I lost weight and I felt really good. And then I started to get sicker and sicker because nutrition is kind of important. And now I don't eat any leafy green without a lot of fat. And I cook all of them. Even honestly, when I do really intense things, I would rather saute green lettuce in butter than eat like the dark green, than just eat it raw. Yeah, and it's just a traditional part of fine cuisine to prepare things that way. There's a reason for it. And it's such a familiar story. I know people turn to vegan diets for very good reasons, uh, good intentions, health reasons, and, 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 and others, you know, ethical reasons. And... It just doesn't seem to be in our biology. It's such a common story. You feel great at first, and then health deteriorates. And a lot of people are finding out about vitamin K2 in my book through that exact reason, and then finding, in particular, they've got problems with their dental health, and that is leading them down a very different path with their food intake. It's funny. As a raw vegan... I started getting this severe temperature sensitivity and tooth pain, and I even like split a tooth down the middle. And I hear this: there's a lot of recovering uh, raw vegans who come to the Bulletproof forums, and you know I know a few people who have been vegetarian and healthy for you know into their 60s. But I, the vegan thing, uh, especially people who've been doing it for 20 plus years, there's very very few of them, and uh, the the few of them that I know aren't as healthy as I think they might possibly be if they included at least some animal like like dairy fat or something. Mm-hmm. What's the role of that dairy fat when you're talking about vitamin K2, calcium, and dairy fat? How do those come together? Well, K2 is a fat-soluble nutrient, so you absolutely do need to get this in foods that have fat in them. So even looking at grass-fed foods, grass-fed meat, for example, is great, but it tends to be very lean. So you're not going to get a lot of vitamin K2 in grass-fed meat. It's the fat of the animals, dairy, butter, um, organ meats. That's where you'll find the K2. And K2 specifically, when we're talking about uh, tooth sensitivity, I've become fairly convinced that that is specifically a a K2 deficiency symptom. Uh, It's so common, tooth sensitivity. You know, you see the ads for sensitive toothpaste all the time. And that is something I used to have completely cleared up after I went, uh, you know, increased my K2 intake. And oral health improvements in oral health is a common uh, feedback that you get when people increase their K2 intake. And that tooth sensitivity is specifically one of them. And these nutrients are, you know, designed to come all together, okay? You have a nutrient or food that's high in calcium, like cheese or milk, and your body protects you from the ill effects of that, or excuse me, Mother Nature protects your body from the ill effects of that by providing you with some vitamin K2 in that food to make sure the calcium doesn't get into the wrong places. It just kind of all fits. Wow, that is that's really, really cool. Are you familiar with uh, the role of mold toxins or mycotoxins in health? Is that an area we can discuss? I, I haven't seen that in your book, but... It's not an area... I know a little bit about it, but I can't say it's an area of expertise for me. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm interested specifically around K2 and its effect on mitigating certain mycotoxins because one of the other things I've noticed is that 
certain tooth sensitivity, especially around temperature and around inflammation mm-hmm. at the root of the tooth, is even on a day-to-day basis influenced partly by intake of mycotoxins in the diet or exposure in the environment. And I've recently had a few experts on from that. So I'm wondering what the K2 mycotoxin interplay is, but I know that's a weird technical question. <laughs> you know, but now that you've explained that, I can say that certainly Price's work showed that K2 has some antimicrobial properties, oh. specifically in the mouth. Uh, he specifically showed that by increasing, or when he used activator X concentrates, that he it would lower the bacterial count in the mouth. Now he wasn't looking at he was only looking at bacteria. He wasn't looking at other microorganisms. But I wouldn't be surprised, given all the benefits it has for the health of the mouth, if that's not also one of the things it's doing. In addition to lowering bacterial count, maybe it's also killing other microorganisms. All right. Is Activator X related to Professor X from X-Men? Because I'm sure hoping. I'm kidding. But uh, tell the people who are listening who probably haven't heard about Activator X if they're not in the the fermented cod liver oil, butter oil crowd. Right. Um, what, What is Activator X? How does it relate to calcium and K2? Sure. So Activator X is the nutrient. When Weston Price traveled around the world and found people all over the world who were very healthy, beautiful, perfect, straight, white, healthy teeth that didn't get cavities, even though, shockingly, they didn't brush and floss, they didn't have dentists, but they were able to maintain this health with good diets, he found that although people ate lots of different types of things, what they actually ate in their diets varied widely, that all their diets provided high levels of vitamins and minerals, but particularly fat-soluble vitamins. He saw very high levels of vitamins A and D, as well as high levels of another fat-soluble vitamin that he didn't know what it was. To his knowledge, it hadn't been identified yet. This was back in the 1930s, 20s and 30s. And so he just called it X, activator X. He referred to the fat-soluble vitamins as activators in a similar way that nowadays we refer to vitamins A and D as hormones because we know that those will actually activate our DNA to allow us to benefit from and utilize the other nutrients, other vitamins and minerals in our diet. And so he started to do a lot of focus on on Activator X because he knew it often came along with the other fat-soluble vitamins, A and D, but uh, he didn't know what its properties um, were. And it turns out he found it very useful in conjunction with vitamins A and D for healing dental cavities. Being a dentist, that was a focus of his. And he actually stopped drilling and filling teeth and, in fact, replaced that almost entirely with a nutritional protocol and published radiographs before and after of, you know, mouths full of open cavities uh, that completely sealed over. So it's actually possible for your teeth to heal up. They're designed to do that if they have the right nutrients. And he found that this activator X was particularly high in certain foods. He's identified which foods it was high in. And a concentrate of grass-fed butter was the Mm -hmm. highest food that he could find uh, for this activator X. And again, for for ages, it was a mystery and a subject of debate in the medical and nutritional world, what is Activator X? And it really was only when uh, Chris Masterjohn's article brought it together that that brought that to the forefront. So Price was onto this so long ago, if not the name of, of the vitamin, at least its properties. He noticed it healed teeth. He had radiographs of it healing bones. And, you know, if he'd had access to a CAT scan, he would have seen some arteries clearing up too. 
One of the things I'm best known for is uh, creating this drink after I went to Tibet and drank yak butter tea. Talk about like a nutrition deficient environment. These guys, they live on like yak butter tea and, and ground up barley flour that they mix with their fingers. And they're like stronger than I am and half my weight, like, like just amazing supermen. It's not just the grass-fed or I guess lichen-fed yak butter, but it's similar substance. Uh, but they're they're in a probably the harshest environment I can think of for that sort of nutritional intake, and they managed to survive with it. I came back to the states and I made uh, bulletproof coffee after a year of iterating different things, which includes grass-fed butter as a substantial part of it. And I've been really privileged uh, a couple times to see uh, vegans uh, <laughs> deciding to try bulletproof coffee for the first time, and like the first time since at least in a long time since they've had any type of of protein from dairy and literally you see like a almost like a shaking of their hands so it's like I need it and you can see like the biological like like give me some more of that yeah. and you're thinking that the vegan diet caused a k2 deficiency or it, it contributes to one anyway and mm -hmm. that then when people get a grass-fed butter source that it's contributing k2 and I know animals and babies will pick out healthy foods when you give them a choice they'll eat non-gmo corn before they'll touch the gmo corn and I feel like even as adults, our bodies kind of sense like there's a craving that's a negative craving, but there's also like, give me some of that kind of yeah. mostly in pregnant women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is K2 what we're craving in butter or is it also the saturated fat or is it conjugated linoleic acid? Is it something else or are you not sure? It may be all of those, okay. uh, you know, that craving for fat and it's, is, is very deep and on some level I'm sure the body knows that there are specific nutrients that usually go along with it. Now in the modern world we can be duped by that because we can be craving the fat and, and the nutrients aren't always there depending on for example how the butter is produced. But uh, I think that in general the, the body knows or used to know that when you got good fat there would be a lot of good stuff and, and good nutrients that went along with it. Got it. So th that could be some of what we're craving. Is uh, so Weston A. Price uh, and Pottinger, when they wrote their book, when they were putting together this butter oil thing, is butter oil different from ghee? And for people listening who don't know about ghee, ghee, G H E E, is clarified butter. Basically, you, you cook the butter till the moisture and all the protein falls out, and all that's left is just the fat. But butter oil, is that a different thing than ghee, in your opinion or your knowledge? Um in my opinion, not really. Based on reading Price's work and the steps he took to create his butter oil is is almost identical, very, very similar to how ghee is prepared. You get the butter, you heat it at low temperatures to separate out the, the, the proteins, which is the milk solids, and you have left behind pure fat, which is a very concentrated form of the fat-soluble vitamins, very similar to the yak butter that you had, which I imagine was... Uh, quite an orange color oh, yeah. and that's typically a sign something is a darker yellow or an orange color a sign that there is more k2 in it. it's not the k2 that's orange but it's the beta carotene and k2 they tend to travel together but from you know the research i've done on modern day butter oil as well as you know prices methods of making butter oil and ghee they are close enough in my mind that you can use these interchangeably oh that's uh, that's remarkable Mm -hmm. I've used ghee to make bulletproof coffee, particularly when I'm working with clients who are sensitive to dairy proteins mm -hmm. or if they're getting a little bit of post-nasal drip, then they switch to ghee and you get less foam in the coffee, but you still get all that fat and the body just responds so nicely when it's blended into a hot substance like that. And to get the foam back, I add in uh, 
another product that I make called Upgraded Collagen, and it's a hydrolyzed source of grass-fed beef collagen, which brings the foam back. So you can still get this, but instead of the little bit of dairy protein causing the foam, you're getting a little bit of beef skin protein, the kind that your body needed anyway. Mm. And it's it, it's really different how people respond when it's blended versus not blended. Do you have any info in your research about does K2 work better when you chew it up or mix it with fat in, in some sort of blending kind of process, or am I just going out on a limb here? <laughs> well, I mean, in nature, K2 would be naturally found, you know, in a matrix of fat, whether it's in butter or cheese, it, you know, it would already be like that. So, uh, you know, the, the fat, well, in your process of making the coffee that way, you're emulsifying the fat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, of course, is going to make it absorb that much better and, and likely deliver the nutrients in it, you know, that much more efficiently. How heat stable is vitamin K2? It's quite heat stable, actually. That's a pretty good news. Yeah. Uh, so studies have been done looking at, say, calf's liver, which is um, kind of a moderate source of K2, either raw or pan fried, and the uh, amount of K2 barely changes. Uh, I, I don't have any concerns about low heat, maybe high heat cooking will reduce it somewhat, but from what we can tell, it's pretty heat stable. Wow. So you've just informed tomorrow morning's biohacking experiment. I take vitamin K2 every day and I'm going to dump it into the blender as I'm making my bulletproof coffee. And then I'm going to give it to my kids. <laughs> I'll take it to myself. <laughs> they get about a, a two tablespoons of bulletproof coffee in the morning because I want them to get the uh, the short chain, medium chain triglycerides and to get you know, the grass fed butter. And plus they just like it and they metabolize <laughs> caffeine very, very fast compared to adults. So it's not, uh, you know, it, it's not like I'm getting them all amped up on anything. I'm sure their teachers really appreciate that. <laughs> I, mean, I drop them off. No, it, they, they don't get hyper from it. They just feel good. And uh um, I definitely did my research before I did that. And it's shown that caffeine and coffee do not stunt growth in children. That was a rumor spread by one of the cereal companies trying to get you to drink burnt cereal acrylamide brew instead of coffee. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm convinced I'm helping my kids with that. But to get them the extra K2 like that, I'm going to do it. And does K2 have like a bad taste? Like butyric acid tastes like sweat socks. What does K2 taste like? It has no particular flavor. As a matter of fact, I give my little ones, uh, the older one from when he was two and a half, my, my younger ones a year and a half, they just chew the little K2 soft gels okay. and they have no problem with it at all. Okay, great. So it's an easy thing to do. How much K2 do you give your kids? I've been giving them about 120 micrograms uh, per day. That is close to the adult dose that I talked about, that I, that I do talk about in my book. I've actually increased my recommendations on K2 intake since I I put the book out. But the reason why I have recommended and still do at least 120 micrograms for kids is, well, first of all, it's non-toxic. But secondly, although we tend to think of children needing less, you know, their bodies are smaller, so they need less. The exception here is that even though their bodies are smaller, their bodies are growing. When your body's growing, your skeleton's growing, that is time for a huge demand for vitamin K2. Uh, The reason why kids and and adolescents tend to get more cavities than adults is specifically because their skeletons are growing, they need more nutrients. And so I um, I don't hold back on the K2. So 120 micrograms that's even for my 18 month old and as uh my older ones you know uh the older one gets into the teen years i'll probably double that up well i i keep a list on the bulletproof executive site uh, around the top 10 list of supplements and i have vitamin k2 on there and from the top of my mind i'm not 
remembering exactly what my recommended dose is, and I get the recommended doses from experts. So I will update my recommendations based on what you're saying because you've done a lot of research about this. And for adults, uh, is it weight dependent? You know, I'm around, I'm guessing 220 because I've recently put on some muscle with electricity. So if I weigh 220 pounds, what's my dose versus if I'm, you know, 100 pound woman? Uh, well, we don't know exactly. There aren't studies to look at, say, optimal dosing. I imagine that for sure body weight does make a difference because you've got, you know, more tissue, more muscle mass, more bones, more everything. You're going to have more nutritional requirements there. The rule of thumb that I'm using, so when I wrote the book, I was going by the studies. Most of the studies were using uh, about 100 and still are using about 180 micrograms of MK7. We can get into the different forms of yeah. K2 that are out there in supplements. And if you were eating one serving of natto per day, you'd be getting about 350 to 400 micrograms. So I'm kind of using that as my new guideline for um, nutritional intake. For somebody who's eating one serving of natto per day, they'd be getting about 350 to 400 micrograms of K2. Now people know why that was my cool fact of the day, because it's one of the highest natural sources of K2. Uh, do you eat it, by the way? Do you like it? I still try to eat it. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I have come to, maybe this is just to make myself feel better, but I've become convinced that natto is like cilantro. You love it or you hate it. Oh. I love cilantro. And, I, you know, there's obviously, there's got to be some kind of genetic component there, is, there yeah. in terms of your taste buds. And because uh, I meet, have met so many people who have tried natto and have said, actually, that's not bad or actually, that's pretty good. And, uh, you know, we, I, I spoke at the Weston Price Conference last fall, and I had a friend, uh, host of the Biodynamics Now podcast, Alan Bayette, who organized a natto tasting. And there were a number of people who emailed me to say, hey, you know, we actually like the natto work, can you get it? Or, or who tasted it and commented it was, it was pretty good. But I still struggle with it. So okay. I try to eat it because I know it's good for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. <laughs> my, my wife, uh, Dr. Lana, uh, loves the stuff, uh, but she's from Sweden and I mean, they eat like spoiled fish as a sport. So I, I don't always trust her <laughs> desire to eat strange foods. I'll like salmon eggs, uh, which also are one of those super foods that Weston A. Price would love. I take them like capsules cause I know they're good for me, but uh, she and my kids, they, I mean, they'll eat a bowl of them if possible. I feel like I'm eating pimples. I, I just can't do it. But <laughs> <laughs> um, Is there any animal source besides like a little bit of fat in grass-fed beef? Because like you said, it's often lean. And grass-fed dairy, which is my favorite source, you know, with the whole putting butter in everything. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some other besides natto mushrooms? I, I'm just guessing there. But are there other sources people can target? A little bit of kale if you cook it? Uh, no, no kale, no green leafy vegetables. There's no K2 okay. in your green leafy vegetables, only vitamin K1. And there's very little conversion of K1 to K2. So, you know, studies have shown for people eating lots of green leafies, you're converting maybe 5% of that and you're not absorbing very much of that either. So you can't rely on that. So okay. other sources of K2, well, natto is the highest known food for vitamin K2. Next after that is goose liver. Uh, which is also, as delicious as it is, very hard to come by, not necessarily something we can eat on a daily basis. Is it grass-fed geese? Not really, but I mean, does it matter if you feed the goose it, a bunch of like mycotoxin-laden corn from GMO sources or not? Well, you know, I don't think that actually affects the K2 content, but then, okay. of course there's other concerns there as well. They just tested standard, uh, you know, goose liver produced okay. in a standard way. 
So then it was uh, it was with we, chemical foods, and they still produce K two. That's good. Yeah, and and we there's a lot more testing to be done because I'm sure that there are a lot more foods out there that are high in K two than we know of. The next ones on the list are certain types of cheeses. So uh, K two in nature will come from uh, some types of bacterial fermentation, like the natto. Uh, goose livers is naturally occurring, and, and goose even goose leg, and I'm convinced goose fat is also high, although it hasn't been tested because the rest of the goose is high. I use a lot of goose fat in cooking around the house. Uh, and so the next after that would be certain types of cheeses. And although grass-fed cheese would be the best, it actually doesn't have to be grass-fed milk to make the K2 because it's the bacteria yeah. that makes the K2. So Gouda and Brie uh, are uh, top the list. And new research since I uh, wrote the book suggests that some types of blue cheeses, but not all, you know, Gouda and Brie are always made with the same bacteria, whereas blue cheese, it varies yeah. quite a bit. There's lots of different types. There's a types. lot of fungal stuff going on in blue cheese, like Roquefortisin yeah. is a known toxin in blue cheese, which is why it's called Roquefort, right? Um, okay, so Gouda and Brie would be preferable. For people yeah. on the Bulletproof diet, there's a little bit of casein and there's some other problems from the fermentation process where I'm a little skeptical that's your best source compared to natto, uh, but it's certainly more flavorful and if you tolerate those well, like do it. Exactly. Uh, so yeah, I, I, and I think that there is, like I said, there's lots more research that we need to do in terms of testing and identifying foods because every healthy culture would have had their high K2 foods and we haven't identified them all. I, um, fish eggs are probably one of them. Uh, Price suggested that fish eggs were high in activator X and it was traditional food that would be eaten by people who were going to be married. So this was for boosting fertility and a lot yeah. of those high K2 foods. Uh, important for fertility and, and proper facial development in children um, in utero. We, uh, my wife and I wrote the Better Baby book. And it's funny you mentioned that specific point because we included that, like eat fish eggs during pregnancy, but don't eat the dyed ones when they put the orange dye, like the tiny fish eggs. Uh, Tobiko, you can get at a sushi restaurant. Those have like uh, petroleum-derived dye in them. Uh, so it, it's funny if you're listening, you're like, okay, how do I know all this stuff? Well, like how do you know all this stuff if you're trying to eat for fertility? It, it's kind of rough and no one's going to be perfect, but okay, like do something that's kind of right and you'll still be better off. Uh, yeah. When it comes to the different sources of K2, I wanted to really dial in because we have a lot of, uh, of you know, really science and information-based people listening to this. Mm-hmm. We have vitamin K1, we have vitamin K2, we have MK4, and we have MK7. Can you walk through kind of specifically what, uh, what are the differences between K1 and K2? We already know that K1 doesn't convert to K2 very well. But what about MK4, MK7? And if you're at the supplement for buying this, this like, is, what do you look for? Okay. Good, very good question. And this is the reason why confusion around exactly this question is the reason why vitamin K2 was overlooked for so long. Because K1 and K2 were both discovered back in the 1930s. The K comes from the German word for coagulation. And uh, at the time, researchers recognized vitamin K1, they were talking about, is found in high amounts in green leafy vegetables. It participates in blood clotting. That's its role in the body, is to make sure our blood can clot properly. And it's so important, blood clotting is so important, that it just can't be left to the whims of our diet. You can't afford to bleed to death because it's winter and you can't get green vegetables. So the body developed a mechanism to recycle vitamin K1 so you'd always have it there for your blood clotting. So deficiency is very rare with vitamin K1. And at the time, researchers noticed 
a slightly different form of vitamin K that they called K2, but they more or less said, ah, K1, K2, same thing, they're blood clotting vitamins, that's it, let's keep moving forward. And it turns out that was wrong. And that's why K2 was overlooked because K2 does not come from green leafy vegetables. Uh, it does not participate in blood clotting under normal circumstances. And because of that, we don't have a mechanism to recycle it. It's not recycled. So you can become deficient in K2 in as little as seven days if you have a K2 deficient diet. And studies have shown now that that's really common. Uh, several, uh, actually, and one that came out just a couple months ago, very common in adolescents as well as adults, K2 deficiency. So if you eat kale chips every day, even though kale starts with the letter K, you still could be deficient in vitamin K. That's right. You're not, uh, you're mm. not, you'll be, you'll have lots of K1. All you have to do is eat the parsley on the side of your plate once in a while and you'll have plenty of K1 because the body reuses it. But K2, you know, you won't, you won't have it. Looks like those kale smoothies weren't the best advice after all. Ah, too bad. Uh. <laughs> So uh, then again, if you add grass-fed butter to your kale, you've got some K2 in there and you've got some K1. Is there an advantage to taking K1 and K2 together for the body? Yeah, I don't think so necessarily. I mean, they they, they work differently. Uh, you know, it's funny. I'll, I guess all these traditional recipes, like a you know some green leafy vegetables cooked up with butter and cheese, that would be high in both of those nutrients. So maybe there is some kind of interaction there. Okay, that sounds... Uh, that sounds like there could be something, but I mean, who knows? It's kind of like, you know, vitamin A and beta carotene, like there's different interactions there. What about uh, MK4 versus MK7? Can you go into more info on those? Yeah, so when we're talking about vitamin K2, there are lots of different types of vitamin K2. Uh, in nature, um, MK4, aminoquinone 4, is a short chain form of vitamin K2 that we find naturally in animals animal, and animal foods. So we as humans have this in our bodies, grass-fed animals, if you have an egg yolk from a grass-fed chicken or butter, all of those things, those will be high in MK4, this short chain form. Bacterial production of vitamin K2 will produce a number of long chain forms, MK5678 through 10. Uh, natto is high in, very high in MK7. Cheeses are high in MK789 and 10. As far as we know, all of these through 4 through 10 have all the same health benefits. The difference is the dose that you have to take when we're looking at supplements. So when you're looking at buying a vitamin K2 supplement, there's two types that you'll find on the market, MK4 supplements and MK7. The MK4 supplements are not from animals. They're not, say, making grass-fed butter and extracting that and putting it into a supplement. That would be crazy expensive. That's not what they're doing. It's actually a synthetic form of vitamin K2 when you buy MK4 supplement. The MK7 supplements are generally from natto, although there are some now uh, soy-free um, synthetic forms of MK7 coming onto the market for people who want to completely avoid soy for whatever reason. So both of these forms of vitamin K2 work. There's been research done on both forms and I get good feedback about both types. You just have to know what dose because the dose varies depending on the type of vitamin K2 you're taking. Okay, we'll post a summary of that on the show notes for this. Of course, we'll have links to your site and all as well. And uh, my recommendations for vitamin D have been based on Dr. Cannell's exhaustive research from the Vitamin D Research Council, and I, um, I, I've donated money to support his research. And uh, are you familiar with Dr. Cannell's work? Mm -hmm. uh, okay, cool. 
And that recommendation is 1,000 IUs of vitamin D3 based on every 25 pounds of body weight. Now, number one, do you agree with those recommendations? And number two, how does K2 and vitamin D interact either from a dose perspective or just tell us how it works? This is a really important question because uh, there's been so much debate around what's the right dose of vitamin D. A lot of people saying uh, low amounts, like 400 RUs or, or 1,000 at the most. Yeah, and then there's other people at a much higher end, 10, 20, 30,000 IUs. And it turns out that the right amount of vitamin D, I don't think, can actually even be determined by your body weight because how much vitamin D you take and how much vitamin D anybody should take, the right answer to that is it depends. Yeah, test your blood. <laughs> Well, actually, it depends. You can test your blood, oh, really? but even that won't tell you because what it depends on is actually vitamin K2. Ooh. And uh, Chris Masterjohn is the one that really brought this to the forefront, the, the relationship between D and K in this way. And that, in fact, the toxicity we see with vitamin D is actually an induced deficiency of K2. What are the toxic symptoms of vitamin D? You just keep absorbing calcium, and that calcium starts to deposit all over your body in inappropriate areas. You can prevent that by taking K2 with your D. Wow. So really, um, you know, once you've got some K2 with your D, kind of the sky's the limit. Now, uh, D the also- The sky's the limit on, on, wait, hold on. What does that on, mean? On, on how much D you could take to you safely could. take. Oh, okay, got it. Now, there, there's a relationship here with vitamin A because studies have shown that uh, by giving DNA together, A has a, a K2 sparing effect. It helps to kind of, it's sort of like the A and D are sort of like the gas and the brakes on the car. And uh, they, will, they will balance one another and complement one another. And then A sort of, or excuse me, K2 kind of completes the cycle and allows your body to use calcium perfectly with all of these fat-soluble nutrients. But it's you know, impossible to say how much do you should be taking unless you're having some K2 in your diet. So let's assume someone has enough K2 and mm -hmm. they're taking vitamin D3. Will their D3 blood levels, the 25 OHD, will that change because of the K2? That we don't know. We haven't no. looked at whether it actually affects your blood levels, but we do know that Okay, we're back. Yeah, we're back. Okay. It looks like it looks you like froze. froze. So we were just talking about uh, what your blood levels would look like with taking adequate vitamin K2 and taking vitamin D. Would your 25 OHD change? Not that we know of. Uh, we haven't really looked at how the intake of K2 would affect your blood levels of vitamin D. We just know that D and K2 work together to optimize your calcium metabolism and make sure the calcium is getting into the right places. So D helps you absorb calcium, K2 puts it into the right places. Right now I recommend people take between 400 and 800 milligrams of absorbable forms of magnesium on a, on a regular basis as long as they're not getting the runs from it because magnesium works with calcium but also works to counter some of the excess calcification that is a problem. If people are taking adequate K2 and adequate vitamin D, should they change their magnesium intake or should they add calcium back into their supplement regimen? Uh, I don't think that they should add calcium back in because they're actually going to be using the calcium from their diet more efficiently. So uh, that that wouldn't be necessarily. I think the magnesium is still necessary. I 
you know, K2 and magnesium seem to complement one another in terms of health benefits and actions in the body in so many different ways that it's actually driving me crazy Mm -hmm. that I can't figure out exactly how they're related, but I know they are and they do good things together. Well, here's a suggestion for that. We know that magnesium is a cofactor for vitamin D doing what it needs to do inside the cell. So it could just be that because magnesium helps vitamin D work better, that therefore vitamin K2 works better through the indirect effect on vitamin D. It's just a theory, no science behind it, but it makes sense. Yeah, it's a good theory. It's plausible for sure. Yeah, okay, who knows? That's going to require a whole bunch of medical studies or something. Um, this is this is really fascinating uh, to be able to ask all these good questions. And if you're listening to this going, ah, what does it mean I should do? What it means you should do is you should take vitamin D. I think the levels that I'm recommending on the site are very science-based. Dr. Cannell has reviewed thousands and thousands of vitamin D studies. He's one of the most concentrated sources of knowledge I know of. So I tend to go with his recommendations there for that nutrient. Uh, Dr. Kate today is going to cause me to update the vitamin K2 recommendations on the site, which are already there, but we'll tighten them up a bit and maybe increase the levels. The magnesium levels we've just checked are borne out, and we're not going to be talking about adding any calcium back into the diet with the exception of calcium AEP, which I recommend for cell membrane stability, not as a source of calcium, and calcium deagglucarate, which is something that I recommend for increasing your abil- your liver's ability to use its second best detox mechanism, which is called glucarination. So if that was too technical, there's 10 things listed on the site. You can just go download them and read them and it's all free. Uh, other question for you though, Dr. Kate. I like bubbly water. I'm holding a bottle of San Pellegrino in front of my face. Now, I like San Pellegrino because it tastes good, particularly with lime, but I also like it because if you look at the really super fine print on the label there that I'm holding up to the screen that you probably won't be able to read, um, it is one of the few things that contains uh, uh, appreciable amount of sulfate. And that's one of the reasons that San Pellegrino, Saint Pellegrino, it is a healing spring in Italy because sulfate can have a really cool effect inside the body and we're just figuring out what vitamin D sulfate does, for instance, that only gets activated from the sun. So if you want to get it, you drink Pellegrino, but you get a lot of calcium in here. Am I overdosing on calcium because I drink between 750 and 1.5, whatever, 750 and 1500 milliliters of the stuff every day? Should okay, I be so, worried? Um, I don't think you should be worried because you've got K2 working for you making sure the calcium isn't depositing in your arteries. And you are taking magnesium, which will balance out the amount of calcium you're getting in there. So, you know, I think you're fine. I, when I'm looking for a bubbly water, I usually look at the ratio of magnesium to calcium. It's high. It's hard to find a high magnesium bubbly yeah. water and as well as then finding one with, with sulfates, uh, you know, and, and really nice water in that way is, is really tough. But with your magnesium and K2, no, I don't think you need to be concerned. Okay, cool. I don't think so either. I'm uh, also because I eat a stick of butter every day and I have for a long time and because I drink Bulletproof coffee and I add the brain octane, which is another fully saturated short chain fat um, to my diet in copious amounts. Uh, I'm going to go down to uh, Seattle and get uh, a calcium scan of my uh, arteries. And of yes. course, I'll talk about those results. I'm pretty sure I know what they're going to say, but hey, let's be safe and careful. And as an N equals one experiment, I will share that data. Uh, I'm I'm pretty sure you could predict the out the outcome of that as well, given that you know what I take, but we'll, uh, we'll get the data. It's, I haven't done the scan yet, so I don't know what it is, but I'll tell you when I know. Looking forward to seeing that. What else should people know about K2 that I haven't asked? 
it, it I, you know, I kind of touched on the fact that it is such an important nutrient for prenatal health during pregnancy and childhood. It plays a really important role in proper facial development. I've got before and after pictures in my book, price focused on this. And it, this is also borne out by, by modern research looking at uh, defects and, and deficiency in vitamin K and how this affects facial development. And so important for nice, wide, straight teeth. If you've got kids coming and you want to avoid braces down the road, K2 will help you do that. And throughout childhood to improve, well, you know, skeletal growth as well as fighting cavities. And then again throughout adolescence, when those hormones kick in and the skeleton starts to grow, it's a huge time of increased nutrient need. Vitamin K2 is a really important nutrient here. And osteoporosis prevention really starts in adolescence when you can gain as much bone density as possible by the age of 20 and 30 to save it for later on. Wow, that uh, that's really cool information. Is there a connection between... Yeah, wow, I, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, is there a connection between vitamin K2 and folic acid, because you see cleft palate in children who are deficient, actually inactivated, it's not even folic acid, it's folinic acid or folate. But uh, this is something we wrote about in the Better Baby book, and we talked about K2 and its importance. Is there an interaction that I don't know about between folic acid and K2? Not a direct interaction between those nutrients that I've come across. Yeah. Anytime you see a midline deficit like that, you know, you're looking at a nutrient uh, problem um, and, the, and the deficits we see with K2 are different, but all of those conditions, any nutritionally related condition, will increase in prevalence with birth order. So in other words, mom tends to give lots of her nutrients to the first baby that's born, and unless she knows the right foods to eat, subsequent kids will have a higher risk of facial and dental deformities and, and these kinds of problems uh, if she's not replenishing her body to pass it on to the kids. So after you have a baby, if you're going to have more, eat a lot more liver. That's what that comes down to, right? Lots more liver. Wait a couple years, space those babies <laughs> yeah. out, and eat lots of liver and butter and all those foods. Awesome. That is good advice, even though liver tastes gross. Now, Dr. Kate, there's a question that every guest on the podcast has answered, and that is, what are the top three recommendations you have for people who want to perform better, who want to kick more ass? This doesn't have to be just K2. It doesn't have to be just medicine. But based on your entire life's knowledge, if you had to share three things, what would they be? Oh, wow. Based on my entire life's knowledge, that's kind of putting me on the spot. Yes. <laughs> uh, let, me, let, me stick to, let me stick to nutrition for the moment. Okay. Uh, I would say number one is try natto. You might hate it, but you might love it. And Dave, you were pretty cagey there. You actually didn't admit whether or not you're eating it. I'm guessing you're not. But it's worth mm -hmm. a try for everyone if you can find it and try it because you might like it and you'll be much better off for it. But, truth be told, if I'm at a sushi restaurant and they have natto, I eat it sometimes, but I wonder if the soybeans are genetically modified or not because I try not to eat them. So I don't know the right answer to do there. Fair enough. And if you can find organic natto, which would be made with non-GMO soybeans, and I also know people that are making their own or using uh, things like uh, black beans and using the natto culture and making their own ferment with the natto culture. Okay. I, I would do that. I eat all sorts of things that taste gross because they're good for me, so I don't mind making a natto, liver, <laughs> a natto raw liver smoothie. Okay, I'll do that. Um, but uh, I don't have to like it. All right. So that was one, eat natto. <laughs> Number two, well, you kind of already touched on it, so that would be eat liver sometimes. 
it's, wow. you know, it's not sexy. It doesn't always, well, you can make it taste good if you learn to cook it. Chicken livers are a lot easier uh, if you learn to cook it properly, but eat it sometimes because it really is yeah. probably the most nutritious food. I take desiccated grass-fed liver capsules so I don't have to taste it, or I freeze it when we buy a whole animal. I freeze it in little cubes and swallow them like pills because I don't like it. But yeah, okay, got it. Liver. You should do that too. Okay. (laughs) And number three, and I think that you'll like this one a lot better, is brie cheese and a glass of red wine is the ultimate heart-healthy snack. Red wine with okra toxin A. You've lost (laughs) me on that one. Why wouldn't you use coffee instead? You could, but in the evening before bedtime or, or you know, later in the day, if you're, co- if you're caffeine sensitive like I am, even with a bulletproof coffee, it'll keep me oh, up. Oh, yeah. I don't drink that before bed. Never drink it after <laughs> two. That's my recommendation. That stuff is rocket fuel. Um, so I, I'm about to publish some more research about red wine and the, the prevalence of um, mycotoxins and mold toxins in red wine and tell people how they can choose a healthier red wine with less effect on their kidneys and their cardiovascular health because like, there are some serious problems, particularly in North America, where the standards are more lax around mold toxins. So I'm, I'm seeing you know, European wines that are not designed for export have dramatically lower levels of toxins than some of the other wines. So it's kind of funny how you feel the next morning based on the quality of the cheese and the quality of the wine is Mm. huge. And the differentiating factor there are these toxins that are active at like a parts per billion amount. And what I don't know, and I'm dying to know, is whether K2 would make me more resilient against mold toxins. So I'm going to have to see if I can dig that one up if there is anything. Mm. You're right. And I should have qualified that with good quality because that makes a difference in everything, right? Even with your liver, it's got to be organic. Oh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. Cool. What a what a cool list of questions. I can tell you that out of more than 100 people who've been on the show, including, like I said, Chris Masterjohn, um, let's see, uh, Chris Kresser has been on, and um, who else was just on? Uh, Mark from Mark's Daily Apple was just on Mark Sisson. Uh, so out of all those people, no one has put Eat Liver and Eat Natto as their top, their top three. So you're totally nailing some new ideas here. I love it. Thank you. All right. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Would you tell people the title of your book, where they can find out more about your book and more about you? Sure. My book is called Vitamin K2 and the Calcium Paradox, How a Little-Known Vitamin Could Save Your Life, and that's literally true. They can find my book on all of the online booksellers, although they've been selling out a lot lately, so be patient with them, or by going to my website, www.drkatend.com. Dr. Kate N.D. as in naturopathic doctor. Mm -hmm, Uh, Just so people hear the N versus M if they're driving. Dr. Kate, it's been a pleasure being able to ask you those detailed questions that hopefully didn't bore any listeners. And remember, if you heard this, there's a reason that vitamin D and vitamin K2 and magnesium, actually and vitamin A, are all on the top 10 vitamins list for people who want to be more bulletproof in their life. Signing out now. If you like the show, please click like or whatever it is you do on iTunes to tell people it's a good show and they should listen. Have an awesome day. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products.
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.